Why is it hard for white journalists to call things racist? Imagine how hard it must be to experience racism in a world where y'all are too cowardly to call it out. Zerlina Maxwell on Twitter. If you're a white editor, understand that your recent education of race cannot compare to the education of life your POC reporters and colleagues have. Respect their experience and trust their instincts. You just got here. Hashtag journalism. Elaine Stevens on Twitter. Woo, folks on here clearly need to read up on the long history of how the FBI and other counterintelligence groups infiltrate black protest movements to cause chaos and turn popular support, as well as how white supremacist groups still infiltrate law enforcement. Nicole Hannah-Jones on Twitter. I rarely write anything personal for public consumption, but these times have been especially trying for me as an African-American and as a journalist. Amanda Barrett on Twitter. From young, ambitious, and pliable to seasoned and pushing back, we're seeing more journalists be vocal on social media these days about the experiences they're having behind the scenes. I'm Renata Sago. And I'm Crystal Chavez. This is Beyond the Newsroom. Quick recap. Last episode, we shared how the news business has changed the way we sound, in some ways, literally. And we discussed how the powers that be tried to make us sound more status quo. Now we're talking about owning our voices, owning the stories we tell and how we tell them. In this episode, we're talking about how popular journalists are using their privilege to openly question the status quo. They're calling out headlines and story angles. They're pushing for mainstream news outlets to truly reflect the United States. Let's get to it. Some of the realest callouts to the business are on journalists' favorite platform, Twitter. One of my favorite accounts, at Tenzina Vega, 41.8K followers, Vega is host of WNYC's The Takeaway, heard on public radio stations across the country. Vega took over in 2018 after the host of the show, John Hockenberry, retired. He was accused of sexual harassment and bullying after that, which is a whole nother story. Definitely. Vega has been on maternity leave for much of this pandemic, but on May 1st, in the thick of COVID-19 coverage, she tweeted she's not seeing enough coverage of how COVID is affecting Latinos. This is something her show is doing. Take this episode. We know, for instance, that women and people of color earn less money and have less wealth. And what that means when they hit a time of unemployment and when they hit hard times is they have simply less to fall back on. As you hear, the show recently looked at how labor organizing can help women and people of color unemployed due to the virus. And I really do just love how the takeaway now can take the big news of the day and seamlessly incorporate discussions on race, class, and inequality. That's what Vega used to cover at CNN. Vega is very vocal about her identity, and it's evident her lived experiences influence her work. I've been working on issues of inclusion and diversity in newsrooms almost by default, right, since I started in this in this business. And it's become much more of a formal thing for me as the years have gone on. You noted some of the pieces that I've written about this issue. Um, I've tweeted extensively about it, but I've also written a lot about it. So I'm very conscious of it. I'm a woman. I'm a woman of color. Um, I'm a woman that, you know, came from a uh, low socioeconomic background. I grew up in public housing. So all of these things are things that don't necessarily fit the profile already of who we think of when we think of 
public radio hosts. When we think of <clears throat> top columnists, right, we don't think of that. And so I'm already sort of an anomaly in this space in many ways. That was Vega in an interview on Miami public radio station WLRN. What about you, Renata? The journalists whose voices I admire the most are the ones who echo the writers and journalists of our past. Nicole Hannah-Jones is one of them. She's the reason why people are evoking Ida B. Wells more and more these days. And for anyone who doesn't know who Ida B. Wells was, she was a black journalist who in the late 1800s was going, traveling across the country, documenting lynchings, among other things. She was reporting for black-owned newspapers, which she co-owned. Thinking back... Ida B. Wells would have spent no more than five minutes in the newsrooms we've been in before she said peace. <sighs> so Nicole Hannah-Jones goes by Ida Bay Wells on Twitter. A few days after the killing of George Floyd, she tweeted this. Those who commit the murders write the reports. Those are the words of Ida B. Wells. Someone else I really rock with is Morgan Jerkins. She's the senior editor of Zora, Medium's space for women writers of color. Zora is named after Zora Neale Hurston, the writer, novelist, and anthropologist who gathered stories about Black people in the South. Morgan Jerkins writes these long Twitter threads about Black history and politics and pop culture. And the thing is, she's an editor, so she's shaping conversations, and she's encouraging other writers to contribute to them. Charles Blow, that's another journalist I respect. He goes hard on Twitter, too, but then again, he's an opinions columnist. That's his job, really. But let me ask you, C, because my journalism training has come from working in newsrooms. I didn't go to J school. Did you learn in J school about the importance of having your own voice? Not really. That's not what comes to mind. The focus was all about how we're supposed to be objective and neutral. But I did take away the fact that my voice was important from two professors, a black and Latina professor, both women, the few minority professors I had. They talked about the history of women in news and their own experiences. And they made me feel more comfortable and confident and they gave me a sense of empowerment sitting in these big, large auditoriums with mostly white students. Got you. Well, you talked about Tanzina Vega. Who else do you admire? Another veteran journalist I admire, Lulu Garcia Navarro, host of NPR's Weekend Edition Sunday. It's been more than four months since a gunman opened fire at a Walmart in El Paso, Texas, killing 22 people and injuring two dozen more. The shooter confessed he deliberately targeted Latinos. Since the August attack, residents have had to cope with the trauma of that tragedy. And as the year winds up, we thought we would After check the in. El Paso mass shooting last year, she wrote an article for The Atlantic titled The Media Erased Latinos from the Story. The subheadline, it was the deadliest attack targeting Latinos in recent U.S. history. Why wasn't that the headline? Latino Journal Twitter widely shared the article and thanked Lulu for writing it. In it, she points out how the initial front page headlines focused on Trump's speech about the shooting. She wrote, they gave top billing to calls for unity by a president who has for years used angry rhetoric that dehumanizes and maligns Latinos. The Trump calls for unity headlines lacked context. Providing context is our job as journalists. Garcia Navarro calls out newsroom leaders to not accept the muted voice and reach of Latinos in U.S. newsrooms. 
And of course, it may be easier to speak out when you're a nationally syndicated host. You have clout. Yes, clout. But some journalists at local outlets are doing the same thing. In the Twitterverse, did you ever do this? Not really. The biggest thing I probably did was post a Zora Neale Hurston quote. It said, and this is my quote, if you are silent about your pain, they'll kill you and say you enjoyed it. You see, a lot of journalists write in their Twitter bios that their retweets aren't endorsements. But if I'm real, my retweets were definitely endorsing topics that I wanted coverage on. But other than that, I really didn't speak out on Twitter because I just didn't feel like having my words get misinterpreted and having to deal with arguing with someone for clarity online. That's just not my style. But what about you? You used to go very hard on Twitter. (laughs) And looking back at my tweets, April 1st, 2019, I wrote, my last news director sent me to a statewide diversity training. I had already seen the exact same presentation, led in part by NPR's VP of Diversity, but everyone else in the newsroom was too busy to go. I could teach the course. I tweeted from it. I did come back to the newsroom and shared some of the highlights, such as NPR's study on itself found uh, Latinx reporters are more likely to use Latinx sources in their stories. I definitely think my newsroom would have gained more by sending one of my white colleagues instead of me because it also put the onus on me to be like the diversity coach, which is exhausting. And on top of an already exhausting job with deadlines and pressures that, you know, all about. I remember that tweet. You used to go hard on Facebook, too. Yeah, I was particularly vocal in private public media journalism forums like sometimes vocal to a fault. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I want to ask you, what do you mean to a fault? But I low key know. But let me ask you, what do you mean to a fault? I'm coughing. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) To a fault, to a fault, as in I would piss off my boss, my news director, and then have to go to work the next day. I had mentors telling me to quiet down and essentially some people asking me, like, do you want to be considered a firebrand? <laughs> you would be popping off on the computer. I would be hearing typing, loud typing. <laughs> oh, my God. Like at the beginning of this episode, I was typing like that. Oh, my God. I would come into the newsroom in the morning. I'm like, Renata, did you see what that bitch wrote in the public media journalist page? And you were like, no. And, like, looking back, like, I caused myself a lot of stress by engaging in these private online arguments with, like, people across the country in private. Wasn't It wasn't great for my mental health. And I, like, I really don't know if I changed anyone's mind about anything. I don't know, but... I definitely remember you being stressed out. And I remember being like, why? (laughs) Why is she spending so much time in the forums? Because no one knows about the forums in the community. Like, I would be like, those people do not matter. Yeah, I know. I remember I was like so annoyed by Kai Rizdahl's Twitter account. Kai, the host of Marketplace from American Public Media. This is Marketplace. 
In Los Angeles, I'm Kai Rizdahl. Friday today, the 5th day of June. Good as always. I noticed yeah. he would tweet some pretty opinionated stuff, like outrageous at times coming from a news host. Like he tweets things I'd never I would never get away with as a Latina journalist. Like we're supposed to be unbiased, neutral, so on. And I started a conversation in the private Facebook journalism forums. I shared a screenshot. I would screenshot everybody. <laughs> I shared a screenshot of of a Kai Rizdal tweet. He wrote, quote, OMFG, oh my fucking God, shut up, Marco, about immigration. Seriously, acknowledge you lost on that issue and move on. And he was talking about Marco Rubio. Yes. And if I had tweeted this, my news director confirmed she would have fired me. I would have been accused of having an agenda, for sure. Most agreed Kai's tweet was inappropriate. A few played devil's advocate. You know, he was just being on brand. He's built his persona. And he was just weighing in on debate strategy. But I repeat, how would this have played over coming from... A black or brown journalist. Persona, that word we have to unpack one day for journalists. Kai Rizal's got a big following. He's got a big voice. I used to work on his show, and when my great grandmother died, I tweeted this video we made when I last saw her on her 99th birthday. Hey! Hey, over there! Hey! Hey! <laughs> I'm going to be 99. 99. Uh, I'll you. 99. 99. And then nobody's going to take that nine from me. And along with the video, I wrote this. My great-grandmother passed away yesterday at age 99. The last time we spoke, we prayed for loved ones. And the last time I saw her, we made this video. Instead of offering condolences, just offer the world the best version of yourself every day. Live boldly, love unconditionally. Oh, yeah. So so Kai Rizdal retweeted that, and it got thousands of views, and it made me so happy. And I sent him a note thanking him, and he was like, no problem. He loved the message. And that meant a lot to me, really. And I've noticed in the past few years, some white male journalists have been using their privilege to shout out our stories. I know that exact video you're talking about with your grandmother, a great-grandmother, and that's really sweet that he retweeted that. I mean, he's got a big following. I think that is sweet. And then I just also want to say, like, women's voices are valid without the retweet from anyone, any celebrity. Yeah, that's a fact. And so another place... A journalist's voice is oh so important is at the morning news meeting. Ah, the good old morning news meeting where ideas go to die or be fought for with all your life. Yes. Tell us about a time you fought for a story. Ha! How much time do we got? I was really vocal during morning news meetings. You know this. But I really, really fought when it came time for edits. One big argument I had was with an editor over one line. The story was for radio. It was about Toys R Us closing its stores. The powers that be said they wanted the story to focus on business strategy, how toy makers would be able to stay afloat after the closing of this huge distributor. I remember doing all of that. I was making the calls. I was getting the comments, doing what I needed to do. And then I added a line at the very end of the story. It was about the number of people 
who were employed at Toys R Us and who would be losing their jobs because of the closures. When it came time for the edit, the editor saw that line and said, we didn't have enough time to include it in the radio version of the story. Okay, so I argued that we needed the line in there to acknowledge that the closures were going to do more than affect the toy industry. They were going to affect people's lives. We went back and forth over this, back and forth. Yeah, and I see what you were saying there with that line. Like, we see this happening now. People losing retail jobs because of COVID. Now they want to tell that story. So what ended up happening? The line stayed. Toys R Us says it has more than 30,000 employees in the U.S., Puerto Rico, and Guam. Because I'm a savage. I'm a savage. Classy, bougie, ratchet. Sassy, moody, nasty. Why am I dancing in the closet? Okay. Another back and forth I had was with a couple of editors at NPR. It was over a headline. I will never forget this. Like, you know how your grandparents and your great-grandparents, they have stories that they tell all the time. Well, this will be my story. Okay. I'd written a story about the grassroots movement in Florida led by formerly convicted felons who wanted to have their voting rights restored. Now, for context, these are people who had already served their time and were fighting to end a law, a very old law. We're talking Reconstruction-era law that permanently banned them from voting, okay? So I've been covering the story for years, and as it evolves, I pitched the story to NPR. I pitched it to a black editor who I'd worked with in the past, She accepts the piece. I write the story. She edits it before going on her vacation. We finalize a headline for the story. She tells me when the story will go live on NPR's website. Everything. Smooth process. Boom. Okay. Tell me why. The day the story goes live, I see it on the website. But the headline is different. Instead of saying, in Florida, ex-felons want their voting rights restored automatically, the headline reads... In Florida, felons want their voting rights restored automatically. Factually incorrect. Yes, so I'm livid. (laughs) I'm livid. So I email the editors on duty and I'm like, hold up. This headline needs to change. This completely undermines the story. So I get an email back from an editor. Hold on. Let me pull this email up because you know I still have it. (laughs) Okay, here's the email from the editor. It says, quote, actually, I discussed this with Susan. It appears we have gone back and forth based on the links in the story. The story that I wrote, mind you. We went with this style from our style book. Felon. Convicted felon is redundant. Once a felon, always a felon. Do not say former felon or similar. Is that from the NPR style book? Yep. And then they brought up the AP style book. Don't even get me started on the AP style book. I will go down a philosophical rabbit hole about the AP style book. And who writes it? Okay, but anyway, they tell me that the AP style book says, quote, a felon is a person who has been convicted of a felony, regardless of whether the individual actually spends time in confinement 
or is given probation or a fine instead. Convicted felon is redundant. I've never seen that AP excerpt. Like I've looked at the AP style book so many times and I, I wonder if that's still in the latest AP style book. I don't know. But what I will say is I immediately clapped back. That definition they tried to justify was was so political. I mean, deeply political. And it was at the center of the very issue my story was about. How do you classify people who have served their time? You know, headlines are so important, especially when nowadays some people only read headlines. And I'm guilty of that. You know, long story short, the editors ended up changing the headline to what it was supposed to be. And I just kept thinking to myself that these white editors had come in, they undermined what their colleague, a black editor who was on vacation, had already finalized with a black reporter who knew the damn story. <sighs> okay, um, what about you? <laughs> so frustrating, I can't. One thing I did start doing later in my career was documenting stuff. Going to HR which is something I did not do early on. I was too scared to. But now I wanted to put incidents on the record. Did going to HR help? That's debatable. But I did start doing that for myself. Like after my news director called me a chihuahua when she was upset with me, her only Mexican reporter, I posted that in a Facebook forum to vent. And I took it to HR. I would take racist incidents to social media because sometimes I felt like something wasn't happening in the workplace or HR wasn't handling it to my satisfaction. And I wanted to feel validated and there was always someone that was going to validate me online with these stories. So sometimes it was just that. Therapy and validation. It helps. It helps. All right, all right, that's all for now. Thank you for listening, and thank you for owning your voice. So how are we doing? Have a story that you want to share with us? Hit us up at doyouhoney at gmail.org. And thank you, Sonato, for this jam. Till next time.